Thank you very much, Philip, um, and thank you all for coming. It's a huge pleasure to be uh, in this extremely beautiful room. I think it's the most beautiful room I've ever lectured in. Uh, I recently heard a, a, a musical story from a composer friend, uh, Alexander Gurr, to whom I was talking about the subject of this lecture, Literary Encounters. He said, did I know of the famous, literary, the famous encounter between Puccini and Schoenberg? He told me that Puccini, very ill the first performance of Piero Lunaire uh, in Florence. Puccini went to the performance and was then sent a score by Schoenberg. On reading it, he said, this is the music of the future. I don't understand it, but I know it will prevail and I will never write another note. Shortly thereafter, he died and Turandot was, com was completed by somebody else. Fascinated by this story, I went to check it in Julian Budden's 2002 OUP book on Puccini, where I found this. An event that Puccini was determined not to miss was the first performance of Schoenberg's Piero Lunaire in Florence on the 1st of April 1924 under the master's direction. Through the composer Alfredo Casella, he obtained an introduction to Schoenberg himself, who received him cordially and provided him with a score with which to follow the performance. Puccini's reaction was noted by a witness. He said, to arrive at a conception of such a musical world, one must have gone beyond the normal sense of harmony. That's to say, one must possess a nature quite different from what one has at present. Who can say whether Schoenberg may not be a point of departure for a goal in the distant future? Just now, I'm... Now, the way this story has been mythologized and turned into legend by another composer, Goer, who incidentally had inherited the legacy of Schoenberg, but is also a great admirer of Puccini, interests me very much. Goer had perhaps conflated the Schoenberg and the Wagner anecdotes. He had simplified and dramatized Puccini's end in operatic fashion. But what remained true to the original story was Puccini's sense that he had encountered in Schoenberg the man of the distant future leaving him behind in the past. I want to talk tonight about famous encounters between literary figures and about the way such encounters are narrated and get turned into legends. My central figures are going to be Isaiah Berlin and Anna Akhmatova, and I was provoked into thinking about them because as president of Wilson College, which as you all know, Isaiah Berlin founded in the 1960s, I find myself thinking and reading about him rather a lot. For instance, I was reading Noel Annan's 1980 introduction to Isaiah Berlin's personal impressions, his accounts of remarkable men and women he had met. Annan noted Berlin's interest in human beings rather than abstract ideas. Like Hamlet, says Noel Annan, he stands amazed at what a piece of work is man. Unlike Hamlet, he delights in man. His thoughts, his theories always refer to people. To see Shelley plain, to meet, as Berlin has done, men and women such as Pasternak or Stravinsky, Virginia Woolf or Picasso, Russell or Einstein, he finds greatly exciting. As Berlin himself said in 1958 of his friendship with Chaim Weizmann, to know a great man must permanently transform one's ideas of what human beings can be or do. Noel Annan is referring there to the famous poem by Browning, Memorabilia, 1855, which was inspired by an accidental meeting in a bookshop with someone who had known Browning's early hero, Shelley. The poem begins, Ah, did you once see Shelley plain? And did he stop and speak to you? And did you speak to him again? 
How strange it seems and new. This talk is about those moments of seeing Shelley plain, those moments which permanently transform one's ideas of what human beings can be or do. As a biographer, I see great potential in what those moments tell us about the people involved, how they are transmitted, how they settle into the legends and life stories of those involved. I'm very interested in how those life stories get turned into literature. So much depends on who the witnesses are, how soon and by whom the record is written, to what extent the the stories are hardened, distorted, revised in the telling, and what use is made of the encounter by uh, memoirists and biographers. When the two people involved are of great fame, interest and distinction, these meetings can often be the subject of rival versions, disputes and controversies. I don't know if you've noticed that the satirist Craig Brown has recently published a comic anthology of 101 such curious and coincidental meetings called One on One, which includes such intriguing pairings as Harpo Marx and George Bernard Shaw, Marilyn Monroe and Khrushchev, Uh, Edward Heath and Walter Sickert. Um, Brown's more interested in the comic potential of these anecdotes than in the ways they've been remembered, but he does mention the the unreliability of witnesses, giving seven different versions, for instance, of Proust's legendary single encounter with James Joyce. He prefers Walt Disney's version to Igor Stravinsky's of their meeting over Fantasia, which cannibalized the Rite of Spring for its score. Stravinsky remembered that he hated it and said so. Disney remembered that he loved it and said so. Whose memory are we to trust, asks Craig Brown. There may be a temptation to favor the highbrow over the lowbrow, but self-delusion reigns on all, high and low. The legendary life-changing encounter that I want to concentrate on today is the meeting between Isaiah Berlin and the poet Anna Akhmatova, which took place in Russia in 1945. But before I get to that famous encounter, I want to think out loud about a few other examples of such meetings, in particular between literary figures, because I think the telling of them often follows certain patterns. So although Berlin's meeting with Achmatova is a unique and remarkable moment in both their lives, it also has features in common with what I'd like to call the encounter narrative. These features show up particularly in in accounts of meeting which don't mark the start of lifelong friendships, but which remain singular, striking memories in the two people's lives, not blurred or muddied by regular later encounters or long-term changes of feeling. Think back to the moments in your life when you have met a remarkable man or woman. Probably you will remember who introduced you, how it came about, something about the room or setting where it took place, something of what you ate or drank there, and one or two things the person said. But you might not remember the whole conversation or what you and the other person were wearing or who else came and went or what you yourself said during the meeting. That is, unless I'm surrounded by dedicated diary keepers who would have rushed off and written down every word immediately. On the one occasion when I met Isaiah Berlin, I went to see him in All Souls in the early 1990s because I was working on my biography of Virginia Woolf, whom he had met. 
I remember his being extremely flattering and charming to me, but all that I remember of his conversation had nothing to do with Virginia Woolf. It was his vivid account of hearing Shaliapin singing Boris Godunov in the Marinsky Theatre in Petrograd in 1916 when he was seven, and his demonstration of Boris hiding under the table when the ghost of Dmitri appears was very striking to me. I thought I felt incredibly privileged. I thought, my God, he's telling me this story he's never told anybody else. And then years later, when I came to read his biography, I realized that he told this story to everybody, and it features, um, uh, it features in his biography is one of the things he used to tell. But that's the story that I always tell about that encounter. So that has become the story of the meeting. We all do this, I think. We keep our nugget of the encounter. We treasure it, we polish it, we produce it when the moment is right. What are the common features of the narratives of such encounters? They're often a mixture of comedy, excitement, bathos or disappointment, with feelings of high emotion cut across by banal details of food and drink, physical discomfort or social embarrassment. They're often a meeting between a younger person who is the visitor and the older person who is often the visitee. They often contain within them that sense, as when Puccini met Schoenberg, of the past encountering the future. They often mention the gatekeeper, the introducer, the person through whom the intense encounter became possible. And this person is often a minor or even irrelevant character, someone whose own version of the event would be extremely interesting to have, but is hardly ever registered. Other minor characters may appear, interrupting or obstructing or terminating the meeting. Berlin's meeting with Akhmatova, rather like a scene in a Russian play, is particularly rich in such minor figures. The narratives usually include some description of place, and most often the meeting will be indoors and will depend on the famous person being fixed in their home, visitable. Uh, It was very easy to find Isaiah Berlin at All Souls in, in the 1990s. Famous people have, of course, often suffered from their visitability. Tennyson, in famous old age, loathed the fact that he had become a social curiosity, and people would line up along the garden wall. At Fang, you'd see their heads peering over. Oh, look, there's the poet laureate. That's what he's doing now, Um, trying to sort of catch a sight of him. They'd get off the bus to see him. Uh, Evelyn Waugh, in the words of the novelist Penelope Fitzgerald, would emerge from his study to meet visitors threateningly aloof with the message, I am bored, you are frightened. But all these kinds of encounter narratives are meant to give the reader the frisson, the catch in the breath of Browning's And Did You Once See Shelley Plain? So I want to spend a a bit of this talk looking for these common features that I've been uh, suggesting in some encounter narratives of major figures in the history of Anglo-American literature, which is what I work on. Um, I love the partly comic partly touching thought of Oscar Wilde on his sensational American lecture tour in 1882 in his brown velveteen knee breeches, which you can see there, going to Camden, New Jersey to meet the bearded, wonderful beard, the bearded white-haired Walt Whitman, because that's what you did on your American tour. It was like going to see Brooklyn Bridge, as it were, and being given a glass of elderberry wine by Walt's sister-in-law. Wilde, perhaps trying to sound a touch like Jesus, said, if it had been vinegar, I would have drunk it all the same. For I have an admiration for that man which I can hardly express. He sat at Whitman's feet on a low stool with his hand on the poet's knee. Whitman was entranced and described Wilde as a great, big, splendid boy, so frank and outspoken and manly, 
and he had the good sense to take a great fancy to me. I think Whitman sounds exactly like Oscar Wilde there, actually. Uh, Wilde said he was the grandest man I ever met and boasted in later years that the kiss of Walt Whitman is still on my lips. It's wonderful. So you have this wonderful sort of symbolic encounter between the old bohemian sage of Camden and the young Irish aesthete and dandy, which becomes a sort of symbolic validation and benediction. It's very interesting, too, that these two renowned homosexual writers uh, insisted on each other's manliness. When the famous literary encounter is between a man and a woman, there may be more complications in play. As in the famous first meeting, there were a few more to follow between Charlotte Bronte and William William Makepeace Thackeray on the 4th of December, 1849. Charlotte had published Jane Eyre and Shirley under the name of Cara Bell. The fact that Cara Bell was a woman and that the woman was Charlotte Bronte was just becoming an open secret, but Bronte still did not want it widely known. She went to London to stay with her publisher, George Smith, and the high moment of the visit was the night her hero, the great Thackeray came to dinner. Unfortunately, she had had no breakfast and no lunch, and by dinner time she was, she reported, thoroughly faint from inanition. Excitement and exhaustion together made savage work of me that evening. What he thought of me, I cannot tell. She cast a sharp eye on him. He is a very tall man with a peculiar face, not handsome, very ugly indeed. She sounds like Jane Eyre. Generally somewhat satirical and stern in expression, but capable also of a kind look. It is better, I should think, to have him for a friend than an enemy, for he is a most formidable-looking personage. All he says is most simple, but often cynical, harsh, and contradictory. Thackeray went off to his club after dinner and told everyone he had been dining with Jane Eyre, thereby completely blowing her cover. He described the trembling little frame, the little hand, the great honest eyes, and said that an impetuous honesty seemed to me to characterise the woman. On their few later meetings, she found him cynical, unserious, and worldly. He found her stiff, over-idealistic, and, as he put it, highfalutin. It's a very good example of a brief encounter between two great writers who could not be more different, physically, socially, intellectually, and who could not find common ground, yet they admired each other and fundamentally wished each other well. So such encounters are often about opposition, not sympathy. And the reality of the meeting comes home to us, of course, through the detail of Bronte being so hungry that she couldn't think how to talk to him. One of the most eloquent, vivid, and detailed, though not always kind, narrators of literary encounters is Virginia Woolf, whose diaries and letters make endless stories out of her meetings with remarkable men and women. They're almost always written very close in time to the encounter, so they have the raw, quick detail of instant recollection. Yet she's always very aware in writing these meetings down how fast one starts to make a shape out of an event. She talks about this in her record of meeting Thomas Hardy, her only time of meeting him, whom she and her husband Leonard went to visit in his house in Dorchester, Maxgate, on the 23rd of July, 1926. Wolfe was 44, Hardy was 86, and would die two years later. The reason for meeting was that Hardy had known Wolfe's father, Leslie Stephen. The gatekeeper of the visit was Mrs. Hardy. The minor but important character was Hardy's dog, Wessex, who, quote, bites people. 
In a long diary entry written two days later, Wolfe puts down everything she could recall, circling back over the encounter with as much detail as possible. That You can see she partly has in mind that this record of Virginia Woolf's only meeting with Thomas Hardy may be of interest to posterity. First, she does the parlour maid, bringing in the silver cake stands, and Mrs. Hardy resigned to yet another lot of visitors, much more interested in Wessex the dog than in anything else. Then Hardy, trotting in, she uses that verb several times, she says, a little puffy-cheeked, cheerful old man with an atmosphere cheerful and businesslike in addressing us, rather like an old doctor's or solicitor's, saying, well now, as he shook hands. He took his tea, extremely affable and aware of his duties, later offering Leonard a whiskey and water, clearly a very competent host. They had a bit of chat about his books and about mutual friends and about the dog. Meanwhile, Mrs. Hardy, Wolf noted, was leaning upon the tea table, not eating, gazing out. Wolf tried to get him to say which of his books he would choose to read on a train, but he was not to be drawn. She said she had brought the mayor of Casterbridge with her to read on the train. And did it hold your interest, he asked. He trotted off to sign a copy of a book for her and came back with life's little ironies with her name spelt W-O-L-F-F, which she thought must have given him some anxiety. She asked him to pet Wessex, who went on wheezing away. Summing him up, she noticed his impressive simplicity, his freedom, ease, and vitality, his interest in facts, his setting no great stock by literature, his bright eyes. She felt how he would be, quote, naturally swept off into imagining and creating without a thought of its being difficult or remarkable, becoming obsessed and living in imagination. The visit made a great impression on her. When she came to write about Hardy on his death, she called him a great unconscious writer. The simplicity, the lack of self-consciousness, which she noted in him in person, also seemed to her to apply to his work, and by implication contrasted with her own arduous struggle to find the right form and shape for her own fiction. For weeks after her visit to Hardy, she talked to all her friends about it and was aware that she was shaping it as she retold it to herself and to others, using a, interestingly using a musical language for how this process works. She says... I was telling myself the story of our visit to the Hardys, and I began to compose it. That is to say, to dwell on Mrs. Hardy leaning on the table, looking out apathetically, vaguely, and so would soon bring everything into harmony with that as the dominant theme. But the actual event was different. The actual event was different. It's a strong warning note about these encounter narratives. If you want to sit down, there's some places there. Of all these literary encounters... One of the most legendary and the most haunting is that between Keats and Coleridge. Unusually, this did not take place indoors, but on Hampstead Heath, where both poets used to walk. They knew about each other, but this was their only meeting. It took place on April the 11th, 1819. Keats was 23 and had two more years to live. Coleridge was 47. He was the great, senior, famous man in the encounter. The gatekeeper was Coleridge's friend Joseph Green, with whom Coleridge was walking and whom Keats knew from Guy's Hospital, so he felt able to go up and introduce himself. Both poets recorded the encounter, but very differently. Coleridge wrote two accounts of it, both with the benefit of hindsight, over ten years later, one in conversation in 1830 and one in 1832. He described Keats as a loose, slack, not well-dressed youth who talked with them for a few minutes, then came back and said, 
Let me carry away the memory, Coleridge, of having pressed your hand. Coleridge shook hands, and as Keats walked away, he turned to Green and said, there is death in that hand. Or, as he embellished it in conversation, heaven, said I, when I shook him by the hand, there was death. In Keats's version, which has the persuasive advantage of being written four days later in a letter to his brother and sister-in-law, the two poets with Mr. Green take a two-mile walk on the heath together while Coleridge talks in his notorious and inimitable style, brilliantly encapsulated and evoked by Keats in his letter. And here's the letter. In those two miles, he broached a thousand things. Let me see if I can give you a list. Nightingales poetry, on poetical sensation, metaphysics, different genera and species of dreams, nightmare, a dream accompanied by a sense of touch, single and double touch, a dream related, first and second consciousness, the difference explained between will and volition, monsters, the kraken, mermaids, Southey believes in them, a ghost story, good morning, I heard his voice as he came towards me. I heard it as he moved away. I had heard it all the interval. It's interesting to see how Keats's and Coleridge's biographers deal with this famous and touching encounter, some pointing to Coleridge's condescension and inaccuracy, some to Keats's spellbound amusement at the comedy of, of Coleridge's talk, some noting that Coleridge didn't remember that they'd walked together because it was he who was doing all the talking, as usual, some noting the closeness in time of the conversation to Keats's writing of his dream nightmare poem, La Belle Dame, and his Ode to a Nightingale. What they all remark on is the spellbinding sound of that voice so wonderfully evoked by Keats, what Virginia Woolf, writing about Coleridge, would call a swarm, a cloud, a buzz of words, darting this way and that, clustering, quivering, and hanging suspended. It's like a beehive. That power of the speaking voice is something I'm going to come back to as a crucial feature of the encounter narrative now that I come at last, uh, to the meeting between Isaiah Berlin and Akhmatova. Many of the features uh, of the uh, encounters that I've been describing are also found in the narrative of this meeting, which is one of the most intense and significant of 20th century literary meetings, and which which raises very dramatically questions of remembering and storytelling, of disputed rival versions, and of how an encounter can harden into a myth. Isaiah Berlin was born in Riga on June the 6th, 1909, to a Russian Jewish family, and from 1916 lived in St. Petersburg, which had been renamed Petrograd in 1914. In 1920, the family left for Latvia, and then in 1921 for England. He became, as I'm sure you all know, an Oxford Don at New College and All Souls in the 1930s, a brilliant philosopher, a man of the world, a Zionist, a music lover, an advocate of liberalism and pluralism. In 1940, he was appointed by the Ministry of Information to go to America and try to get America into the war. In 1942, he joined the British Embassy in Washington to report on American opinions and policy in wartime. And in 1945, he was sent from Washington to Moscow in the official role of temporary first secretary to the British Embassy to write a dispatch about post-war American-Soviet-British relations before his return to academic life in Oxford. It's a pretty amazing interlude for a philosophy don. His visit to Russia in 1945 was his first return since his childhood. He was 36. 
He talked to politicians, writers, composers, critics, bureaucrats. He met Pasternak. In November 1945, he went by train with a lady called Brenda Tripp from the British Council to Leningrad, the Petrograd of his childhood. It was not long since the horrors of the thousand-day siege, and everywhere in the city, as well as vivid reminders of his childhood, there were marks of ruin, destruction, hunger, and deprivation. Berlin wanted to know what had happened to the writers, to the great flowering of talent and genius, which had briefly flourished after the revolution and then been ruthlessly crushed and purged under Stalin. Almost as soon as he arrived, he and Miss Tripp found their way to the writer's bookshop on the Nevsky, managed by Gennady Rachlin, who made the bookshop a meeting place for writers and who, as it later transpired, was a police spy. At the bookshop, Berlin talked to someone who was browsing books there, a critic and historian called Vladimir Orlov. Berlin asked him about the fate and the whereabouts of Leningrad's writers. Was Akhmatova still alive? Why, yes, of course, Orlov replied. She lives not far from here, in Fontani Dom. Fountain House. Would you like to meet her? Isaiah comments, it was as if I had been suddenly invited to meet Miss Christina Rossetti. I could hardly speak. I mumbled that I should indeed like to meet her. Anna Akhmatova, born in 1886, was then 59, so over 20 years older than Berlin, and was then at once the most popular and the most censored and isolated of Russian poets. She was one of the great pre-revolutionary literary circle known as the Acmeists, and one of that quartet of writers, the others being Mandelstam, Marina Tsertaeva, and Pasternak, who had come to adulthood in the early 20th century at a time of war and revolution. Her dear friend Mandelstam had been killed during Stalin's years of terror. Svetaeva had committed suicide. Her first husband, the poet Gumilyov, was killed on Lenin's orders in 1921. Her second ex-husband, the art historian Punin, would die in prison in 1953. Her son, Lev Gumilyov, had been in prison since 1938 and had only just been released. Her work had been banned from publication for decades. She had not been to Europe for 34 years. She lived in bleak and deprived circumstances in a room in the Fountain House next to her ex-husband's room in the large, run-down 18th-century palace on the banks of the Fontanka Canal, pockmarked with shells. With nothing on the wall except a drawing of her done by Modigliani in Paris in 1911, little furniture, little privacy, little to eat. Here she was writing her long, epic poem without a hero. The story of the meeting, according to Isaiah Berlin, is as follows. The phone call was made, and at three o'clock that afternoon, he went with Orlov and was received in the bare upstairs room by a woman he described, and others also described, as like a tragic queen, immensely dignified with unhurried gestures, a noble head, beautiful, somewhat severe features, and an expression of immense sadness. She would have seen a dark, portly, short, bespectacled man in a dark suit with an intensely eloquent and intelligent face and a deep, distinctive, extremely rapid, almost stammering voice. There was an academic lady with her, so there were four people in the room. They began to talk, 
And then Berlin heard his name being shouted from the courtyard downstairs. At first he thought this was an illusion. And then he went to look out and saw the unlikely figure of Randolph Churchill, son of Winston, behaving like a tipsy undergraduate. They had, in fact, been undergraduates together. Churchill provides a comic, if somewhat sinister, interlude in this encounter. He had just arrived in Leningrad on a newspaper assignment and was staying, by chance, at the same hotel as Berlin. He spoke no Russian and needed a translator so that he could get someone to put the caviar he had just bought into an icebox. This is how the story goes. He had met Brenda Tripp, uh, who had told him where to find Berlin and gone to, gone to find him. Because Churchill was undoubtedly being tailed by the secret police, Berlin went down and hastily got rid of him. He went back to the bookshop and ran Achmatova to apologize and asked if he could come back later. Perhaps unwisely for her, she said yes. When he did return at nine o'clock that night, she was again with another lady, an academic Assyriologist who stayed until nearly midnight, asking Berlin boring questions about English universities. After all these false starts, obstacles, and interruptions, only at midnight did the conversation with Achmatova really begin, and it was interrupted once again at about three o'clock in the morning by her son, Lev Gumilyov, an erudite history professor living down the hall, who offered to make them a dish of boiled potatoes. It was all there was to eat. Apart from that, for the rest of the time, Berlin and Achmatova talked all night alone until late the following morning. This remarkable and significant conversation covered a great range of subjects, historical, political, literary, and personal, of intense interest to both of them. First, as was natural, they talked about mutual friends, in particular the artist Boris Anrep and Salome Halpern, who had once been a famous St. Petersburg beauty and socialite. It was moving to Achmatova to find that Berlin knew these old friends whom she had not seen for years. She told him about her time in Paris before the war and her friendship with Modigliani, about her childhood and her first husband and his terrible fate. She recited some of Byron's Don Juan to him in a completely unintelligible English accent, which at once moved and embarrassed him. She spoke some of her own poems, then broke down in tears, then resumed with the unfinished poem without a hero. Even then, Berlin noted, I realized I was listening to a work of genius. It was a memorial to her life as a poet and to the past of the city, St. Petersburg, which was part of her being, and of course part of his being, though he doesn't say so in his, in his record. She described the years of Stalin's terror, 1937-8, the fate of loved ones, the torture and slaughter of millions of innocents. She talked of Mandelstam and Alexei Tolstoy. Then, after eating the boiled potatoes... They began to speak of other writers, including Chekhov, whom she disliked for his absence of heroism and martyrdom, Tolstoy, whom she disliked for his Philistine morality and egocentricity, and Dostoevsky, whom she worshipped. They disagreed over Turgenev, whom, whose delicate subtlety attracted him much more than it did her. Berlin writes his account of this encounter 35 years afterwards. Yet he reports Achmatova's opinions as if she is speaking, as if he had a tape recorder in the room with him, or has a complete memory of what she said, and has then translated it into an English, which is, as a translation from the Russian might be, slightly formalized, slightly unidiomatic. The effect is dramatic, seductive, not entirely believable. Here she is on Tolstoy speaking in quote marks. 
Why did Anna Karenina have to be killed, she asked. As soon as she leaves Karenin, everything changes. She suddenly becomes a fallen woman in Tolstoy's eyes, a traviata, a prostitute. Of course, there are pages of genius, but the basic morality is disgusting. Who punishes Anna? God? No, society. The same society, the hypocrisy of which Tolstoy is never tired of denouncing. In the end, he tells us that she repels even Vronsky. Tolstoy is lying. He knew better than that. The morality of Anna Karenina, i.e. the book, is the morality of Tolstoy's wife, of his Moscow aunts. He knew the truth, yet he forced himself shamefully to conform to Philistine convention. Tolstoy's morality is a direct expression of his own private life, his personal vicissitudes. And so it continues for quite a long time, eloquent, emphatic, sounding strongly idiosyncratic and opinionated, yet also sounding more than a little bit like Isaiah's own prose style and tone of voice. The talk becomes increasingly intense, emotional, personal. She quizzes him about his private life, and he said later that he told her about the person he was currently in love with, about his childhood and his family. She talked at length about music, especially Beethoven. She described her loneliness and isolation, and she said that her sustenance came from literature and the images of the past and from translating. He summed up her intellectual stance. All poetry and art to her was a form of nostalgia, a longing for a universal culture as Goethe and Schlegel had conceived it. She spoke, he said, without the slightest trace of of self-pity, like a princess in exile. As the night wore on, Berlin smoked his miniature Swiss cigars and the cigar smoke filled the room. He was longing for a pea, but didn't dare to go down the hall to the lavatory in case it would stop her talking. Outside, they could hear the frozen rain falling onto the Fontanka Canal. For him, it was, as his biographer Michael Ignatieff would say, an intense passage of validation. Here was the great, this is Ignatieff's uh, description of it, here was the greatest living poet of his native language, talking to him as if he had always belonged in her circle and understood what she said and what she meant. For her, this is also in Ignatieff's words, it was meeting a messenger between two Russian cultures, one in external exile, the other in internal exile, which had been split apart by the revolution. Berlin left the Fountain House at last at about 11 in the morning and went back to his hotel room, where Brenda Tripp, who went in to see him, recorded him in her diary, falling onto his bed and saying, I am in love, I am in love. Almost at once, Achmatova began to write him into the poem without a hero as the guest from the future, the long-awaited visitor, the revenant from Europe, the messenger from another more hopeful world, the guest from the future, Is it true that he really will come to me, turning left at the bridge? She also started to transform the visit into an idealized, inspirational, spiritual encounter in a sequence of poems called Sank. Before he left Russia in January 1946, Berlin went back for one more shorter visit, and she gave him some of these poems. As if on the rim of a cloud, I remember your words... And because of my words to you, night became brighter than day. Thus, torn from the earth, we rose up like stars. The late-night dialogue turned into the delicate shimmer of interlaced rainbows. 
This momentous encounter had prolonged and complex repercussions. Berlin at once wrote two reports, one personal and one formal, arising out of this encounter, but only referring to it indirectly, and also arising out of his meeting with Pasternak and with other writers and artists in Moscow and Leningrad. In these essays, called The Arts in Russia Under Stalin and A Visit to Leningrad, he commented on the tragic obliteration of the vast ferment in Soviet thought that had burgeoned before 1928, the witch hunts, the increasing state control, the purges of 37 and 38, the appalling conditions under which writers lived, their solitude, their isolation, their longing for European books and news and recognition, the silencing of their internal protests. So what he did was to depersonalize the encounter, to turn it into political observation almost at once, And yet the power of that observation is fueled by the strong personal effect of the encounter. And he concluded these reports with a faint hope that even under these conditions, what he calls the astonishingly undiminished moral and intellectual appetite of this most imaginative and least narrow of peoples might still come through and lead to gigantic achievements in the future. In private, he clearly talked and talked about the encounter, sometimes to the wrong people, and he was, of course, a great talker. He called it immediately afterwards the most thrilling thing that has ever, I think, happened to me, and later one of the most moving experiences of my life, an encounter which affected me profoundly and permanently changed my outlook. His dedication to liberalism, his commitment to individuals as agents of history, his profound horror of tyranny and coercion were fueled by this meeting with Akhmatova. But for her, though she did not blame him, the results were disastrous. Probably because of Randolph Churchill's appearance, the visit came to Stalin's attention, who commented, so now our nun is consorting with British spies, is she? The day after Berlin came to say goodbye to her, men in uniform went into her room while she was out and screwed a microphone to the ceiling, leaving the floor strewn with plaster. She was continually followed and spied on. In August, she was singled out for vilification by the Central Committee of the Communist Party and expelled from the Writers' Union. She had very little to live on. Her book of poems was pulped. In 1949, her son was rearrested, and the next day she burnt all her manuscripts, having committed all her poems to memory. She was convinced, probably rightly, that these catastrophes were the result of Berlin's visit, which she continued to turn, nevertheless, into rhapsodic and idealized poetry. More grandiloquently, she was, she was persuaded that their encounter marked the beginning of the Cold War, and often said so. He felt some guilt and anxiety in his phrase qualms of conscience about what happened to her after his visit, but he resisted her mythologizing, world-changing versions of the encounter. He would say, she considered us both to be figures of world history, appointed by destiny to play a fateful role in a cosmic conflict, or AA romanticized everything and was liable to tragic interpretations. The romanticizing on her side was made more possible because they did not meet again for many years. In August 1956, he was back in Russia with his new wife, Aline, visiting Pasternak. He tried to arrange a a meeting with Akhmatova, but she declined it, 
Perhaps because she felt that their previous meeting had done her so much damage. Perhaps, according to him, because she resented his marriage. Her romanticized guest from the future was not supposed to have done anything so uninteresting and banal as gone and got married in the most ordinary banal fashion. And when I talked to Aline uh, Berlin about this encounter, um, uh, about their visit uh, back to Russia uh, th this summer, she, she confirmed this. She said, yes, that's, that's why she wouldn't see him. But in 1965, again years later, he arranged for her to go to Oxford and receive an honorary degree from the university, just at the time of his 56th birthday, a year before she died. You can imagine how much planning was involved in this visit and how much ceremony, and it did go well, but the intimacy seems not really to have been renewed. She was somewhat satirical of Sir, as she called him, in his gilded cage. By this time, their meeting had become legendary. Whole books, poems, a play, memoirs, biographies made use of and rewrote the story. A book called The Guest from the Future, Anna Akhmatova and Isaiah Berlin by Georgi Dalos describes itself as a love story. Because they had spent the night together, the rumor persisted that they had had a sexual liaison. Nothing, Berlin said, is further from the truth. Controversy still rages about the accuracy of Berlin's account of the event. An essay recently published in the TLS in, on September the 9th by Josephine von Zitschewitz contends that new biographical information in a revisionist book called That's How It Was, compiled by three Russian writers and published by the Anna Akhmatova Museum in St. Petersburg in 2009, casts new doubts on Berlin's story. Zitschewitz says that the book shows that at least two of the gatekeepers to the encounter, the two academic lady friends, were KGB spies, that there were five meetings not one or two, hence the title of the poem sequence, Sank, that Berlin must have already known Rachlin, the bookshop owner, and known where to find Achmatova before he went to Leningrad, that the visit might indeed have been prearranged, that Randolph Churchill could not possibly have got into the courtyard of the building. She argues that Berlin may have changed the facts partly to, quote, deflect attention from the rationale behind his trip to Leningrad. If not exactly a spy... He was collecting and analyzing details about the Soviet Union for the British Embassy. And he may have been trying to protect Akhmatova from reprisals. And, as Berlin's editor, Henry Hardy, to whose work I am greatly indebted in all this, has noted, he may also have been trying to protect his own relations in the USSR as well. So, do we believe the details of this famous encounter narrative drawn from memory. I have been turning it around and around in my mind. It would certainly be prudent, whether or not we want to take a radically sceptical approach to this narrative, to be wary of taking it as literal truth, as Berlin's biographer Michael Ignatieff does, paraphrasing his retrospective account of it as though it were straightforwardly reliable data. There are many warning signs that Berlin's narrative, written, as I said, 35 years after the event, is taken, uh, uh, is taken from memory. The essay, Meetings with Russian Writers, is prefaced by a quotation from Akhmatova which goes like this. Every attempt to produce coherent memories amounts to falsification. No human memory is so arranged as to recollect everything in continuous sequence. Letters and diaries often turn out to be bad assistants. As if this were not loud enough a warning note, the first footnote in the essay, 
the essay Meetings with Russian Writers reads as follows. I have never kept a diary, and this account is based on what I now remember or recollect that I remembered and sometimes described to my friends during the last 30 or more years. I know only too well that memory, at any rate my memory, is not always a reliable witness of facts or events, particularly of conversations which at times I have quoted. I can only say that I have recorded the facts as accurately as I recall them. I love that phrase, recollect that I remembered, because that is how it works, isn't it? In concluding his essay, he writes... And this is wonderful. I blame myself greatly for not having recorded in detail her views of persons and movements and predicaments. How much more detailed could that account of her view of Tolstoy have been? Years later, when asked again about the encounter, he would say that his account of it was based on a very few notes and an imperfect memory. In an as-yet-unpublished letter to Dan Davin of 24th of September 1974, shown to me by Henry Hardy, Berlin said, I cannot possibly trust my memory. Not that I get the facts directly wrong, so much as that I tend to colour the past far too much, to dramatise things and exaggerate. Yet, let me turn it around again. For all those warning notes about memory and unreliability, there are contextual factors to this encounter narrative which give it strong plausibility. Consider this. The encounter took place at a moment when he had just gone back to Leningrad for the first time since leaving it as a child. And he makes a point in the essay of emphasizing how dramatically his memories were rushing in even before he went to see Akhmatova. He writes, In Leningrad, my recollections of childhood became fabulously vivid. I was inexpressibly moved by the look of the streets, the houses, the statues, the embankments. My memories of specific events, episodes, experiences came between me and the physical reality. So this meeting took place already in a heightened state of recall and intensely felt memories. And consider another point too. Akhmatova and Berlin both belong to a national culture that was used to communicating through oral tradition, particularly at a time of censorship, when the memorizing of poetry, as Achmatova memorized both her own poetry and that of Mandelstam and Svetaeva, was often the only way of preserving it. For all those kinds of reasons, it would be a mistake to be entirely skeptical about Berlin's apparently total recall of his night with Achmatova, hedged about with warnings, though it comes. Perhaps he did have it all in his head from memory. But again, but, memory we know can play us false. Memoirists, fiction writers, autobiographers, biographers are always telling us so, even while they are busily engaged in acts of remembering. Take just one example out of thousands, a wise remark by that wise and wonderful American writer, William Maxwell. What we refer to confidently as memory is really a form of storytelling that goes on continually in the mind and often changes with the telling. Too many conflicting emotional interests are involved for life ever to be wholly acceptable. And possibly it is the work of the storyteller to rearrange things so that they conform to this end. In any case, in talking about the past, we lie with every breath we draw. A more technical account of the same idea is given by Kiaran Benson in The Cultural Psychology of Self of 2001, who draws attention to the importance of an audience or an interlocutor in the process of remembering. Theorists of memory, going back to Frederick Bartlett in his book Remembering of 1932, frequently argue, quote, that memory retains a little outstanding detail, 
while the remainder of what we remember represents an elaboration that is merely influenced by the original event. Bartlett refers to this key characteristic of memory as reconstructive, as opposed to reproductive. He says, we are so good at this sort of reconstruction that we are often consciously unaware that it has happened. This seems especially likely to happen when a memory is told and retold. In such situations, the reconstructed memory often seems as real as the recollected memory. Both Berlin and Ahmatova went in for reconstructive remembering. It was part of their imaginative, creative powers. When Ahmatova chose not to see him again in August 1956, she wrote a poem called A Dream, from a volume variously translated as Sweet Briar in Bloom or The Wild Rose Blooms, which contains a single telling line. Not having Russian, I give three versions of the line in three different translations to try for a better sense of the original. One, you invented me, there is no such person. Two, you dreamt me up, there is no person like that in the world, there couldn't be. Three, you invented me, there is no one like that on earth. A few months before his death in April 1997, Isaiah Berlin was interviewed by Anatoly Nyman, a Russian friend who had also known Ahmatova well. Isaiah said of her, she made me up. I wasn't the person she saw in me. She constructed me in some way. Now, whether or not this is a direct reference back to her poem, it certainly echoes it. And that echo sums up the mystery at the heart of these kinds of encounters, particularly this one, so legendary, so often retold, so long remembered. When two great spirits meet, they make each other up. What we are left with is those inventions, and with them, within them, the trace of something real, the boiled potatoes, the sound of the frozen rain falling on the canal, the cigar smoke, and the sound of their voices. Whenever he, he read her writings in years to come, he said that he would always remember the sound of her voice. Those who heard Isaiah Berlin speak and who read his writings can also hear the sound of a living voice. It's like Keats remembering Coleridge. I heard his voice as he came towards me. I heard it as he moved away. I had heard it all the interval. Thank you. <laughs> 